0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit MissionRoadBibleChurch.com. If you were at our, uh, I don't think it was a, uh, last year, our review of the missions trip, the ministry trip that a couple of the elders and their wives and Kim and I took to uh, Italy, Germany, and Russia last year, you'll remember a story that I told, but I want to tell it in the context of this passage. Um, we were on a flight between Germany and Russia, and I ended up being seated between uh, uh, two men. Well, they were, one was on the window, and one was on the other window, and then the Taylors and the Hollands were in between, and they really wanted to sit together. I mean, desperately wanting to sit, sit together. I mean, the guy was almost crying, begging us, could they sit together? Finally, we rearranged things. Kim moved over, and so I'm sitting on the aisle, and there's the middle seat and the window seat with these two Russian guys. Well, I knew we were in trouble when I heard him bringing the bag that had glass clinking together. They sat down, got up in the air, pulled out this big bottle of gin and looked at me in broken English, said, we drink together. So they, uh, uh, the the they, they they had some little plastic cups and they took a couple of drink shots. I'm not even sure what you call it. And uh, then the meal came. And uh, this is Europe, so they actually give you a meal. So um, I had a, I had a cup for my water. And the guy says, "Thank you for letting us sit together. Thank you. The you know, And so without my invitation, shall we say, he's reaching over trying to pour me a glass of gin. Like, no, 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 I, I don't drink, I don't drink, I don't drink, I don't drink. And so um, that deterred him for about five seconds till he poured it in my coffee cup. <laughs> so he finally says, and I said, no, no, I don't drink, more for you, da, da, da. And he, he immediately um, uh, began, say, why, do you, why do you not drink? And so I tr- was very broken English, very... Um, Tough to communicate. And I said, because I- I'm-, I'm a Christian and I want my mind thinking about Jesus. And it's like talking to a four year old. And he wasn't getting it. And so um, um, he-, he said, Oh, American, no drink. So he says, We're Russian. And so he got at his iPad and he started showing me a, um, a hunt that he had gone on with a pig hunt in Russia, Russian boar. And he's like, See, we kill pigs. Blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, and so I got up my iPad <laughs> and began showing him dead pigs, and I showed him my son John and my son Luke with bears they had killed. It's good to be able to be in Kansas and to talk about these things. Babe. This wouldn't fly in Los Angeles. So, um, uh, and, and They were looking. He goes, oh, well, now we're, now we're best friends, and so, um, so they, they said, oh, why you not drink? So I got out my Bible, and I pointed John 3, 16. as as simple, a three-year-old way. Tried to explain to them everything I could about the gospel. And I knew I didn't have long, because the rate at which they were throwing down these glasses of gin, they were going to lose consciousness really soon, which they actually did. Now, I was very afraid that anything you know, that would, that would cause a spark in our row would happen because the plane would have exploded. The The smell of these guys and I thought, I've just disqualified myself. I'm going to get off the, the plane with these Russian Baptists who think if you like in the same area of, of alcohol, you're going to go to hell. And so I'm... I'm this, and, and then there's people in the back who may go to that church and they're pouring me gin and I I was a little concerned. Well, as I tried to talk through John 3.16, I was just exasperated because it was clear they weren't understanding. In the end, all I could do was give him the address, which I had on a little piece of paper because we had to write it on our our, um, uh, incoming documents. The address of the church in Samara, which is where these guys lived, where we were going to minister. They, They ended up passing out and sleeping the rest of the flight. That was an overnight flight. And I began thinking about what had just happened. Not the alcohol thing, but the fact that everything I knew about Christianity, everything about their eternal souls, I just put as an address to a church. Now, in God's good providence, it's a good church. And were they to find the pastors and people in that church, they would have found the gospel. But it marked forever in my mind, if someone were to give someone who doesn't know Christ the address, 7820 Mission Road of our church, and they were to get here to this place and be with us, would that be enough, because they couldn't communicate, to put them in the way of the gospel, in the flow of the gospel, in the understanding of Christ who died for sins and It was a powerful illustration to me how much weight I had put on the address of a church. I was broken for these guys, and all I could give them was an address. But the confidence I had in in the resurrection church where they were going was I knew that if they would just get there, I knew someone somehow, some way would tell them about how their souls could be saved. How developed is your ecclesiology? How developed is our ecclesiology? Would this be a safe harbor for a sinner to come and find shelter from his sins through Christ? Is our church healthy enough by the expression of our individual faith so that people could give them our home address and say, if you'll go to this place, you will find out how to go to heaven. Profound illustration to me. I'll never forget how poignant that word what that was. What is the church? What is the church? We've been studying that for a few weeks now, and we're going to study it for a few more. What, what is the church? You could define it in a lot of ways, in a lot of, in a, from a lot of illustrations, and you would probably be, be correct. But ultimately, we have to remember that in our generation, in Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches, it's very easy for the church to be mistaken as a museum for truth instead of a hospital for souls. It is a hospital for souls. But here's the catch. The passage before us tells us that the doctors are not the pastors and the elders. The doctors who administer the the salve of the soul are one another's. It's each other. Now, the book of Hebrews, if you study it through, is all about comparisons. There are more comparisons in the book of Hebrews than anything else. And what's going on is that the writer compares Jesus to everything. The sacrificial system, the angels, uh, 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 Melchizedek, the high priest, uh, animal sacrifices. Every single chapter, he's comparing something to Jesus. And over and over and over, he says what? Jesus is superior. Compare Jesus to anything, and you'll find him superior. With that, you come to the application point at the end of chapter 10. It's the so what. And the so what crescendos into what we read a minute ago, talking about church attendance, neglecting, neglecting church attendance, and what we're supposed to do when we come to church. But you can't just parachute into that verse without a lot of run-up, okay? So I want to ask a question and answer it. How does the gospel fuel a Christian's Involvement in church. How does the gospel, this is our outline, how does the gospel fuel a Christian's involvement in church? Well, the first answer, very simply, is in verses 19 to 21. Number one, by providing Christ centered motivation. By providing Christ centered motivation. Verses 19 to 21 are a summary of the two main doctrinal points of the whole book of Hebrews namely, uh, that, that we need access to God. And Jesus is our access. We need access, and Jesus is our access. Now, this is set against the old system, the old covenant, the sacrificial system. We find out in Hebrews that there are two main covenants in the Bible. Now, we can talk about multiple covenants. We can talk about multiple dispensations. When you boil it all down, the writer of the Hebrews says, let me make it simple, there are two. The old covenant, which was ineffective, for taking away sin in an ultimate sense, and the new covenant, which is the covenant of Jesus, the new covenant in Jesus' blood, which is incredibly effective in taking away sin. It also highlights that we need a high priest, and we need a high priest before God, and Jesus is that high priest. You might say this, understanding the priesthood of Jesus is the key to understanding access to God. People often ask, what is the connection between the Old Testament and New Testament? There's a lot of connections. One of the main ones, the writer of the Hebrews says, is the the, um, existence of a high priest, especially going in to make a, a sacrifice on the day of atonement for the sins of the people in a salvific sense. He had to do it, as Hebrews 8 and 9 say, over and over and over and over and over again every year, right? It's an annual sacrifice. And one of the punches of this book is that Jesus made one sacrifice and obliterated forever the need for any animal sacrifice. So he tells us, first of all, in 19 and 20, that Jesus... Is our access to God? Look at verse nineteen. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, what a profound statement that would have rocked and shocked a Jewish mind! The holy place is the holy of holies. It was that place that only the high priest could go, and then only once a year by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us that through the uh, us, uh, through the veil, that is his flesh. There's a double entendre here going on. There's a, there's a comparison here. Remember that four inch piece of, of um, material that separated the, the holy of holies from uh, the outer courts. It was called the veil. And when Jesus died, what happened to that veil? 30 feet high. Ripped top to bottom. That veil was a metaphor and a physical a metaphor for the physical representation of what was happening in this verse. The real veil wasn't that. The real veil was Jesus. He, he brought us into the presence of God in the Hebrew Old Testament sacrificial sense by his own flesh. He inaugurated a way for us to get to God. You ever felt timid, Walking into a place that you felt awkwardly uncomfortable, I uh, was uh, invited uh, several years ago with a friend of mine. His name was Adam. We were able to go into the Congress, and he had a, a friend who worked as an aide who was going to get in to see some congressmen. And, and I, this was this was pre nine eleven. It was way there, there there was literally there was no security. You just walked in the building. Walked in the guy's office and you could see him. And that was intended by the founding fathers to be that accessible to the people. Well, we we walked in, we, we saw a couple of guys, and then we, we went to see the center. And I just gotta tell you, I just felt like, you know, uh, you know how you, you feel like when you're a little boy and you're out of place? And I just felt like I'm not supposed to be here. One of these things is not like the other. And it's me. Importance, not importance. Um, it, that's nothing compared to how uncomfortable anyone would feel walking into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. You're not supposed to be there. And yet Jesus rips that veil top to bottom and says, you now have bold, as we'll see in a moment, bold access to God. Verse uh, Hebrews 9, 7 says, only the high priest entered the, the inner room and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, and that they had committed even in ignorance. This is the passage that inspired Charles Wesley's lyric, Bold, I Approach the Eternal Throne. What a blessing to have bold access. We have confidence to enter, boldness to enter into the Holy Spirit place. You can look at the gospel in these verses. Can I state the obvious, by the way? Church is for Christians. Church is for Christians. Church is not specifically intended for unbelievers. We have such a reversal of the understanding of the church today. Footnote, I pray God would fill our empty seats with unbelievers who could hear the gospel. But church is primarily to gather, to equip, and edify, and then we scatter to evangelize. This is not the... When I grew up, to be honest, I was in a Baptist church that had well-intentioned um, uh, motivations, but it was kind of the herd them up and brand them mentality. You, you herd them into the church, the pastor will brand them. You get them to church, and the pastor will, will, uh, will, will get them saved or tell them the gospel. And look, if you come, please, I would love to share the gospel with anybody you bring, but the better plan is share it with them by yourself. The church is for believers. Unbelievers weren't invited to boldly walk through the flesh of Jesus into the Holy of Holies. This should be a place where unbelievers come, they hear the gospel, but they look at you and they look at your relationship and they say, that is really odd. We've said it over and over that they're different races, they're different heights, they're different socioeconomic backgrounds, they're different uh, 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 political parties, they're different everything. Something makes people who would not be a body, a body, and it's Christ. And they should scratch their heads and say, "This this is different than anything else in the world. Such that what they're most impressed by, impacted by, is not so much our love for them, and we should love them, but our love for each other. John 13, 35. By this, all men will, you, will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. Be- <laughs> Let me just say the obvious. Believers should feel a little bit, le- unbelievers rather, unbelievers when they come to church should, be, should feel a little bit left out. Like, I'm not in that group. Now, we would love for them to be in this group, but they don't share the Christ that we share. So they should look and scratch their heads and say, what is that? I think this will be a sad chapter in church history, though, when it's written. You could title this chapter, the the time when so many thought that the church was for unbelievers and not believers. Any unbeliever is welcome, but this is primarily for the church to gather and be equipped and edify, and as you'll see in a moment, pastor one another. He also, in verse 21, tells us that Jesus is our great high priest, under number one. And we have a great high priest over the house of God. This incredible blessing here is that Jesus not only opened the way for us to enjoy God's presence, but also that he is there himself. God intends for you to compare everything to Jesus and discover His superiority. No matter what you see in the Old Testament, the great high priest, all of his hats and robes and uh, urim and thumim that he wore on his chest to see what God was telling him. The simple message is Jesus is better. He is a better high priest. For a lot of reasons, but the main reason is one sacrifice, just one. Secondly, though, I want you to look, number two, at um, how the gospel stimulates church attendance. It also stimulates it by understanding the gospel, secondly, by stimulating church-wide cooperation. Now, this is where we get practical. By stimulating church-wide cooperation. The key is there's a phrase there, let us. The term let us is used three times in these verses. Let us. The plurals in this passage are really important. Since we, let us, the Christian life is not an individual endeavor. I know we hear all the time the, from the pundits and from, from people in our work. Well, my religion is personal. Christianity is not private. It's not personal. It's corporate. When you were young and you heard that little... Song, that little illustration that if you take a coal away from the fire, it burns out quickly, but the ones in the fire stay lit. It's not such a silly illustration. There's a lot of truth in it. Christians who neglect the church become weird, arrogant, unbalanced, and just plain hard to be with. The guy. I don't know. I'm not trying to interpret that amen. So uh, <laughs> they do. <laughs> you know, I I've I've often met, and I think that a lot of these 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 friends are 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 well-intentioned, but I've met so many people who say, I haven't found a church I like, so I'm in my own church at home with my with with three other people. And they are usually, can I just say it, odd? And there's a reason for that. Because the interaction of the body is to sanctify those odd edges and make us more holy. It's because of what we possess in Christ that we have a serious obligation to live in a very specific, defined, holy, and corporate way. Now we come to verse 22, where mutual collaboration for genuine worship is important let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. These verses present a powerful and a compact how-to formula for drawing near to God. Really simple. it's The elements are right there. Sincerity in what we believe. Paul said we preach because of what we believe in 2 Corinthians 4.12. We preach because we believe. We share because we believe. We proclaim because we really believe this. Do do you really believe what you say you believe? Sincerity in what we believe. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. It's honestly in our heart that we believe the gospel. Also forgiveness from our most hidden sins. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That which is going on in the inside. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, again, Paul says that we are, we are not ministers. He doesn't just mean pastors. He means Christians. We're not ministers who have a hidden life of shame. There are no sins that if you expose, habitual sins, that you would say, I, I can't believe that man, that woman, is really about that and hiding that. We don't, we don't have hidden sins of shame. And then lastly, it goes external, glorifying God in our bodies and having our bodies washed with pure water, so many commentators just debate on, what is this pure water? Is it baptism? Paul knew, uh, not Paul, the writer of the Hebrews, who some think is Paul, or Paul through Luke, or Luke without Paul, or Barnabas anyway, we'll not go into that. The writers of the Hebrews, he knew the term baptism, and he could have used baptism, and he didn't hear. I think this is just an illustration, having your bodies washed with pure water. It's a symbol. You've you're, 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 you're living like God owns your body. 1 Corinthians six 20, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God, what? With your bodies. Then he moves into 23, verse 23, and now we get this disciplined perseverance. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. I, see where it says let us hold fast? The writer oftentimes uses the second person singular and plural in this, in this book where he said, you, you, you. He says, let us. And this is intentional to show us that holding fast this confession is a corporate thing. We need each other to do it. You cannot, should not ever try to do this alone. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us be together and making sure that we keep on believing what we know to be true in Scripture. For he who promised is faithful. You gotta love that little footnote. He is faithful. This, by the way, is a repetition of chapter four, verse 14, the confession, public affirmation of our hope, our faith, our belief. The hope there is really interesting. It's the gospel Itself. Isn't the gospel? Can, can you separate, uh, make a synonym out of that and, and make it synonymous with the word hope? Very interesting. He is faithful. What does that have to do with, with this passage? Even when we are faithless, Paul told Timothy, he remains faithful. Faithful. So in the context of saying, make sure that you're corporately keeping one another individually accountable to right doctrine, right living, when you falter, and you will, when you struggle, and you will, there's a great point of reference. He remains what? Faithful. I remember... man who mentored me once saying, something i never forget, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If it were possible for you to lose your salvation, trust me, we would. He remains faithful even when we have times and moments of faithlessness. You've had those, haven't you? Look, every time you sin, you're living faithlessly. But don't you, haven't you ever stopped to think, I, 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 I do believe this, don't I? This is supernatural. I, I, really, I really do believe this. I remember having some crises in a, in a class I took in, in college on theodicy, uh, defense of God and evil. And uh, it was a real small class, six, it was six people on the professor, and it was five against me every class. And I remember going home just thinking, I think I'm right. I'm pretty sure I'm right. Lord, am I right? It must be right, because I'm asking you if I'm right, and I wouldn't be doing that. I mean, just these circular thinking. He remains faithful. He tells us, though, hold on without wavering, which indicates there's a possibility of wavering and stumbling, but Christ is faithful. Now, all of that was to get to verses 24 and 25, where we find mutual encouragement from strategic gatherings. That's what I want you to think about. Mutual encouragement from strategic gatherings. The gatherings are the gathering of the church. But, excuse me, and let us consider, verse 24, how to stimulate, motivate one another to love and good deeds. Look at let us consider, Effective church involvement demands preparation and planning. It takes consideration. Do you consider, here's the convicting truth, and I got to admit, I, I struggle with this because I'm thinking about preaching and a thousand things when I go, but laying all that aside, when you come to church, do, have you considered, do you have a strategic plan of how to do this, or are you coming to an event? Let us consider, have a plan, strategic, informed idea. How to stimulate, encourage, motivate one another. Love and good deeds is just a shorthand for Christian living. This is powerful. There's nothing in this passage about preparation to hear the preaching. Now, I hope you do. I hope you pray. That's another passage and another sermon But the primary way you get ready for church here is to think about who am I gonna, who am I gonna encounter? What am I gonna say? How am I gonna respond? You ever commit the great Christian fraud? You know what that is, right? Somebody downloads their their heart, their burden on you, and you say, Oh, I'll pray for you, which is shorthand for I really don't want to talk about this anymore because I'm uncomfortable. Do you pray for people? Do we pray for each other? Two weeks ago, I was, I was uh, walking through the atrium and it just blessed me. There was, a, there was a gentleman standing right out there with his arm on another guy and they were praying. There's people scurrying about and I said, yes, that's what's supposed to happen. But not only that, do you love and stimulate one another's love and good deeds? Is What do we, this talks about what we talk about at church. Are our conversations sanctification in the moment. Are they moving people toward love and good deeds? Hebrews 3.13, But encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's another way. (laughs) Care groups. This is not just talking about Sunday morning or Sunday night. This is care groups. This is every time we get together in a a gathering that, that involves Christians. Are we indeed doing what Hebrews 3 says, making sure that one another are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Do you know, here's a a scary question, the people who you know best in this room, in this body, do you know what sins they are struggling with and do they know what sins you are struggling with or you say, oh, that's private, that's that's between me and the Lord. Um, I hate to tell you this, but no, it's not. No sin is private because your sin and my sin will ultimately have a dampening effect on the health of Mission Road Bible Church. Christ shepherds his people through active participation in their lives, get this, by other believers' active participation in their lives. Let me sober you for a minute. When you have these gospel conversations, when people are motivating and stimulating you to do this, that is the ministry of the Spirit of God through them to you. One of the questions I have to ask myself is Am I it's two sides. Am I ready to do that? But am I also ready to receive that? can if someone says, hey, I want to pray for you, how, how can I pray for you? and and what are you struggling with? Now, we have to be careful. Don't, don't corner some poor soul out here in the, in the uh, parking lot and say, Tell me your sins. I mean, that's, that's not going to get anywhere. But it means knowing one another beyond that. Can I tell you where we're going to end in the series on the church? Here it is it's that to be involved in a healthy church means that you're intimately involved in one another's lives. And that's not once a week an hour on Sunday morning when everyone's wearing nice clothes. It's all the time. i preached on it before. I won't go back through it again, but David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, remember? So many people saw what David was doing and no one said, stop. If you see... Can I just invite you? If you see suspicious patterns of behavior, if you see suspicious attitudes in me, would you tell me? Would you love my soul and tell me? And if I respond wrongly, tell Bob and Bob will kill me, okay? I'm actually being serious. Shh. Can we invite each other? Now, let me just, this is a, an unashamed, unbashful plug for care groups. Because this is where this could and should happen the best. Shouldn't we have expressed invitations with one another, not everybody, but the people we know, to look carefully into one another's lives and to see what could be addressed? Let me read it again, Hebrews three thirteen. Encourage one another day after day so long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The encouraging of one another should be a deterrent for patterns of sinful thinking and living. Then it comes, verse 25. Where can that happen? Not forsaking our own gathering, assembling together. There's no way to say that that's not the church, but it's more than the church. And then I'm just, can I just be honest with you? I get a little bit of solace by knowing that the writers of the Hebrews experienced the same thing we did, and that's people who, who regularly skip, as is the habit of some. Isn't that funny? As is the habit of some, now, people plugging into and out of church at their own uh, pace is not a modern problem. It's an ancient one. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. <coughs> we can talk all day, by the way, about why others miss church, and you're here. I appreciate that. But why, why did you, why will you miss church? It's a good family discussion. What would cause you to skip? Now, there are legitimate reasons not to come to church. If you have the flu, please do not come to church. We have a live stream for you. All the moms are amending that. And seriously, if, you're, if, you're, if your attendance here would not serve someone and would get them sick, I mean, really? There are legitimate reasons not to come. you have the flu, stay home. But I think the main reasons that Christians don't come to church is a lack of preparation. Can I say it again? Sunday morning begins Saturday night. You could also say Saturday night begins probably midweek where you're thinking about that. I believe Satan whispers his best lies on Sunday morning. I think he's most clever on Sunday mornings. We can just... I'm tired. I couldn't possibly hear. I'm just going to serve the Lord by by not mocking him with my sleeping in church. I, 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 my heart's not in it. I've heard that. No, my heart's not in it, so... The Lord knows that, so I should leave my heart here. The chiefs, no, I can't say that. This is not legalistic. There are times to miss church. There are times you can miss church. This doesn't say, take attendance at church. There are times you're going to miss The legitimate reasons is sometimes because you're. We're talking about a pattern here, not a once isolated incident. There are lots of reasons to miss church that are legitimate. but lack of desire is not one of them. If you're not coming to church because you don't feel like it or you just don't want to, now we've crossed the line. Can I say this too? Meeting at Starbucks with another Christian is not church. I had a guy tell me that recently. Oh, I don't go to organized church, but I have some friends. We meet down at the local coffee shop, and that's church for us. I said, okay, do you have identified leaders, elders, and pastors? Well, no. Well, do you celebrate the Lord's Supper and have baptisms? Well, no. I said, it's not a church. I don't know how to tell you that, but a New Testament definition, you're you're not a church. The significance of the Lord's Day is seen all throughout Scripture. Um, I don't think that the Lord's Day is the is the Old Testament equivalent of the Sabbath, but it has some principles that could apply. We worship on the first day of the week, which celebrates the res- res- Resurrection of Jesus, which is a m- far more important event than the creation, which honors is honored on the sixth day, or the first day rather than the seventh day. You heard, what, understand what I'm saying? Um. Now, having said that, I want to I flip, flip the, the cup over for a second. Let's talk about coming to church for the wrong reason. That's equally a sin. If you're coming to church because you think, I have to, that's. Can you imagine a husband walking in and saying, honey, I'm going to kiss you, but only because I have to? The last phrase is important. All the more, with more intensity, all more deliberately, as you see the day drawing near. There is an absolute application that the church is supposed to be longing for and looking for the return of Jesus Christ. And that gathering together is to remind each other of that and to prepare each other for that. John says in 1 John, are we those who might shrink away in shame at his appearing? I don't want to be that guy. And I need brothers and sisters who will help me not be that person ashamed of his return. Let me say it again. If you try to do Christianity on your own, you're going to be odd, awkward, weird, and severely prideful and arrogant. So do you have a plan for church involvement? I don't mean just attendance. This whole passage is, is basically says because of the gospel, because of our access, because of Christ our high priest, that motivates us to come to church and do something. We have a studying uh, in, the, in the care groups, and I hope you're reading this book. The elders have wanted you to read this book uh, um, uh, by Paul Tripp on um, uh, discipleship, mutual shepherding, um, If I could boil all that that, um, instruments in the Redeemer's hands, if I could boil all of that book into one sentence, it would be this. You have the honor and privilege and God-given responsibility to pastor one another. Those of you who've read it, is, is that a fair assessment? You are called by God not to leave pastoring to the professionals, not just, not just the elders and just the pastors. Now, you should lean on us. That's what we're here for. But there, let, me, let me shock you with his thesis, and I think the Bible's testimony, there is nothing you can't handle in terms of shepherding and counseling your friends. Nothing. You say, well, I don't have all the answers. You're right, but you have Christ. He is the answer. Well, I don't really know how to counsel. You're right, but you have a Bible you can study. Well, I don't know where to start. Well, I can give you an index, a concordance. Not only that, you don't always have to have the answers. You just have to care. I've told you in a in a uh, when we were talking about marriage, uh, one thing that that happened with Kim and me that. Made an indelible impact imprint in our marriage. We were just we were married less than a year, <clears throat> just a few months, and I was um, um, youth pastor meeting with a group of guys. We were studying Luke. I was telling her about telling her about my friend Donnie who was so excited about Luke, and we were meeting at Denny's at six on Tuesday mornings and uh, exuding with excitement. And I look over and she's teared up, and she says, "Well, if I called your secretary Denise." and got an appointment, would you, would you disciple me too? Well, gladly that was about six months into our marriage, not later. So the issue is not so much the content as you care to be with the person. If you do this, if you take this seriously when you come into this building, when you come into your caregivers, it is messy. Burdensome. Makes you uncomfortable. You hear things you don't want to know or hear. Galatians says, bear one another's. Say it. Burdens. It doesn't say, it. let the church leaders bear your burdens. Trust me, we are, as much as we can. This is an empowering passage. This tells you you have pastoral responsibilities. That's why you get together. That's why you come to church. Come to care group. Join a church. If your idea is to just be isolated and insulated and do your own thing, you can come and listen to sermons, but you're gonna be so spiritually retarded in your growth. That's not how God has intended for the body to work. So, when you come to church, do you come with a plan? Do you come to minister? Is this something you can talk about with your wife and your kids? I mean, even on the way, hey, what a great talk to have with your, with your kids, junior hires, senior hires, collegians, when you're coming in. Hey, are we ready? Are you, are you understanding that God, this, is a, this, is a, this will freak you out every appointment you have, every conversation you have in this building, out in the atrium, outside in the parking lot, every one of those is God's divine chest where he's putting a piece right in front of you and saying, minister here. Or are you just talking about the weather? I'd love to reach Kansas City with the gospel. But even more so, I would love for Kansas City to find us and say, What is that? Those people care for and minister to one another. Now, listen, if you do this, as I said, it's messy, it's burdensome, it's traumatic. It's worth it. It's worth it for you, but you need to understand there are people all around you who have. Burdens and anxieties and problems and longings that God has equipped you to serve. And not only that, he means for you to lean on one another. So are are we doing this? Are we loving and stimulating? Are we stimulating one another to love and good deeds? Are we forsaking our assembling together for such a... An occasion because we're you fill in the blank, or are we understanding? The last part of that verse is imp- impressive. Do we understand that Jesus is coming and we want to use each other to get ready for Him? If you if you backward engineer this this verse, you could say our lack I'm including me too our lack of preparation in doing this in church is because we really don't believe Jesus is coming. If we did, we'd help each other get ready. Do we see the day drawing near? I even love the King James. Drawing nigh, just have some gravitas to it. What's the takeaway? Come to the meetings of the church, ready to minister, and you're gonna do that a whole lot better in a care group than you will at an event. And beyond the care group, you're going to do it a whole lot better just hanging out and talking to somebody about their heart and their soul. Don't be that arrogant, private Christian. Let's be involved in each other's lives. Father, I am so waylaid and convicted. I, I am so negligent in so many of these admonitions that I've thrown on this precious body. Forgive me, aid me, help me, convict me, motivate, stimulate me to to love other people, to stimulate and motivate them to love and good deeds, to look for opportunities to minister. Make this a natural part of our relationships. Not only to give, but to receive. Because we have access to you, we enjoy our access to one another. And we do pray as unbelievers visit our church, that they would see radical love between people and desire that. We love each other because you first loved us, Lord. Teach us how to do it better. Because of Christ, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.